You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. I'm Jeff Cockrell, the head of the private equity group at McGuire Woods. If you're not familiar with McGuire Woods, I think most of you are. We're a big law firm with 1,100 lawyers. In my group, the private equity group, we work with companies and private equity funds in a whole host of sectors. I spend all of my time in healthcare provider services transactions. I'm joined by Amber Walsh, who's the head of our healthcare group, and Mark Friedlander, a partner in our restructuring and insolvency group. And we're pleased to be joined by Laura Marcero, a managing director of Huron Consulting, who has 20 years' experience in complex business matters and M&A, especially in the context of distress transactions. The format this go-around is going to be a little different than things we've done in the past, and it kind of flows out of some of the thought leadership that Amber and Mark and I have done on distressed investing, and the feedback we've gotten from a number of folks is that they'd really welcome an opportunity to have a little bit more lively discussion around some of the topics that relate to distressed investing. And so this is going to be a little bit of an experiment. We have intentionally a smaller group of about 15 people joining The lines are going to be open. We might ask you to mute if you're not saying anything, but it's really hopefully going to be interactive, and we'll try to put pauses in. I'll admit that our intuition will be if it's quiet, we'll get a little nervous and want to keep talking, but we really, really do want folks to speak up and raise questions and kind of join the discussion directly, so we'll see how this goes. But we are going to talk through a number of topics uh, relating to distressed investing in healthcare provider services in particular. And with that, uh, to kind of kick us off, Mark, Laura, Amber, and others, please feel free to jump in. Maybe start by talking a little bit about some of the types of companies or characteristics that will find themselves in distressed transactions. Mark, maybe start with you to just kick us off in the discussion. Sure. Good afternoon to everyone. My name is Mark Friedlander again. And in the distress space in general, healthcare in particular, what we are seeing more than anything these days is two kind of current trends. The first is a significant number of healthcare providers in the sector overall have been affected by COVID. And that's not a great shock or surprise to anyone on this call at all. Beyond that, even before COVID, there were any number of healthcare operations that experienced some combination of very tight liquidity and or excessive leverage. And what we are seeing is the intersection between the advent of COVID and that excessive leverage or very tight liquidity coming together to basically form the perfect storm where you have providers that haven't been able to operate, have overly leveraged balance sheets, very tight liquidity in the first instance, and are now desperate to find liquidity sources and or M&A partners. So, Laura, I don't know if you have anything more general to add about what life looks like these days in your world, but that's kind of how I see the majority of things that we're addressing on a distress basis in the healthcare space. 
Yeah, Mark, I agree. We're seeing many of the same trends. I think, you know, due to the steep reduction in the elective procedures, whether it's outpatient or in the hospital setting, healthcare has come under a tremendous amount of pressure. And, and as you noted, the over leverage had been apparent for quite some time in this space. So it truly is a perfect storm that's a great descriptor for it. And what we're seeing is that, you know, as the lenders are starting to deal with some of these distress situations now kind of coming back up from the immediate triage that was necessary when COVID first hit. Now they're pivoting really within the last couple of weeks to a month into looking for solution sets and in some cases incredibly quickly just due to the liquidity needs of the business and whether there's a sponsor there that's willing to contribute. But in the cases where the attention is being turned solely to the lender to, to be the source of the solution for we're seeing that the letters are encouraging and in some cases requiring transactions to bring a new party to the table to assist with that. Mark or Amber, it would seem that there might be some differences as well because you think of like say a, a dental practice or a dermatology practice where they've been really unable to meaningfully see patients for a period of time. I can see how that would create a very, could create a very significant liquidity problem, but there's another level where eventually these restrictions are going to be lifted and people are going to go back to the dermatologist, they're going to go back to the dentist, and there may be still high quality underlying businesses there. How do you see people thinking about the difference between something that needs to be sold in a relative fire sale versus something that they need to find a solution to bridge through to better times that feel like they're not too far around the corner? I'll give some initial thoughts on this. I think you're right. I think it's still going to be a decision on whether or not this particular, not just this sector, but this sector and this particular operator in this sector have the solid qualities that would have made a good investment six months ago. There are going to be some sectors that probably don't bounce back or take a very long time to get there the super electives, the medical spas, et cetera, whereas others have the opportunity to bounce back much more quickly. And so you can continue to look at the same factors that always made them a solid business, but whether or not that particular operator is in a position to do the things that they're going to need to do to operate effectively in the new operations world. Because nobody that comes back is coming back in the same way. So you're going to be vetting out in diligence the all the opportunities you have to use telehealth, what sort of restrictions you're going to need to put in place on your operations, the extent to which you can bring your staff back online quickly or whether or not your staff has kind of dispersed out. Seems like it's going to be a very similar analysis. And one quick example of one very public recent deal in this regard is the sell-off by Mednax of its anesthesia division. That was a very quickly kind of put-together sale where their anesthesia business, as most people know, made $1.2 billion in revenue last year, and they were already projecting in April a loss in 2020 of up to a quarter of a billion dollars. So that huge swing but yet it's still a very attractive area that Napa then gobbled up 
for a very low purchase price of $50 million. So that's an example of what you're talking about, Jeff, of it's an attractive area still, those that can gobble up will be doing it. Mark, I don't know what you're seeing or how you do that. Sure. I think, Amber, that you raise a very important point, which is that not every provider in the same sector is the same. So historical experience with a particular practice is going to be very important. There are those that had difficulties with practice for one reason or another before the advent of COVID. The patients, by way of example, of a lender or lending group with a borrower that had trouble prior to COVID is going to be very different than the patients that a lender may exercise with a otherwise healthy practice that experienced just very short-term liquidity issue and potentially a longer-term issue as a result of the impact upon a particular business of COVID. But you will find as a general proposition, a greater level of patience exercise with a medical practice or provider that was solid before COVID compared to one that was already experiencing issues. Right, and the business that was experiencing issues before COVID and maybe had EBITDA decline coupled with a high amount of leverage when you pile on the depression on valuation from COVID itself, it can also change the dynamics of who has interest in the deal from the sell side, meaning if the equity sponsor is deeply underwater, they're going to quickly lose interest in, and certainly putting additional capital to support this business, but maybe any interest in doing anything at all, which can accelerate the distress and accelerate the need to transact. Why don't we pause there? Like I said, this is going to be a bit of an experiment, and we'd love to get other people's thoughts and engagement in this discussion. So I don't know if uh, kind of on the heels of that kind of opening foray, if anyone that's on the call wanted to jump in, uh, it's okay if not, but just want you all to know that that is welcome. And if not, we'll keep uh, rolling on to some other topics. One of the questions that we've gotten from people as we're kind of looking at distressed transactions is the question of deal sourcing, but where do you go to find these opportunities? Is it kind of traditional bankers? Is it a different set of bankers, other uh, pathways for the kind of the buyers on this call that may, in general, not do as much in distressed acquisitions? How should they think about deal sourcing? Mark or Laura, you want to lead us off? Laura, I'm going to encourage you to respond if you don't mind. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. I think there's a couple of non-traditional sources that folks can look to in the distressed context, the first of which is your special situations M&A groups, particularly those that have a healthcare focus. They're certainly going to have a host of opportunities if you are a buyer in the current environment, which we happen to think if, if you have capital or availability, it's a fantastic time to jump back in and look to either grow your platform or diversify it in some way for all the reasons that have been discussed thus far on, on the call. You know, the other place to perhaps begin socializing uh, your interest is with workout lenders, particularly lenders that, again, specialize in the healthcare space. Those folks, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, 
oftentimes are having to make very quick decisions in the current environment, and so they need a solution set incredibly quickly if there's significant liquidity needs that are necessary to solve for a situation. And as we all know, that absolutely can occur in companies that did well pre-COVID and should survive, but again, you know, perhaps don't have the support of their current sponsor or are unable to bring a transaction together between the sponsor and the lender. So, those two sources, you know, perhaps folks may not have looked to historically, particularly if the focus had been on healthy healthcare M&A, but that's one of the first places or two of the first places that I would look to if I were a buyer in the current environment. Mark, I don't know if you've got a different perspective or additional sources. Well, I would also suggest, Laura, that you self-promote because advisory firms like yours are likewise a very good referral source. Thank you, Mark. You know, Huron's healthcare practice is about 350 to, to 400 million annually across a whole variety of sectors. And the team at McGuire Woods was kind enough to distribute some of our slides. But our healthcare group is incredibly busy right now. And, and Mark's right, whether it's Huron or some of our competitors that also focus in this space, there's a lot of deals and opportunities for you folks by networking with the advisor space as well. So thank you, Mark. You saved me from doing some shameless self-promotion yeah. on my own, so I appreciate it. Well, the point taking it one step further as you think about sources is that where there are distressed companies, it is typical that financial advisory firms are brought in by equity sponsors or instead lenders to assist the troubled company in developing a plan to address the issues. Maybe that plan involves a sale, maybe that plan involves downsizing, spin out, whatever it may involve. Oftentimes, financial advisory firms are early to the game in terms of being involved with a distressed enterprise. One other resource to consider, we at McGuire Woods do a lot of work in the independent sponsor space, and independent sponsors in particular kind of add value best in a context where deal sourcing is difficult, and that can be a really tight market where kind of fishing upstream is difficult, but it can also be significant in a context like we are in today where some of the pathways for deal sourcing are a little bit different than in normal times. And we work with a number of independent sponsors that have been very aggressively pursuing opportunities in distressed situations. And that would be a good avenue to, if you've not done as much with independent sponsors to look at, or if you've done work with independent sponsors to kind of stay close to that group, because many of them are very actively out there seeking investment opportunities, but you've got to be ready to move quickly as you might imagine. Anyone else have anything they wanted to weigh in on on that topic? Can I ask a question on that, Jeff? It's Mark Strauss from Crestline speaking. Given the concentration and the growth of the private credit markets and direct lending in this cycle versus perhaps prior cycles where you're, you know, club deals and look, in the liquid markets, it's something very different, but just thinking middle market where you're likely to have a smaller group of lenders, how do you all foresee many of these shaking out? Is it going to be more for sales? because the lending groups can act more quickly and you know, more of this is going to transact for M&A? Do you think this will be workouts and refinancings? And look, it's going to vary credit to credit and situation to situation, but are you starting to get a sense of how lenders are thinking about these, just given 
also the volume constraints that people are going to have and focus and attention? Sure. I'll start, and then uh, if others on the call want to weigh in, I think it also depends on kind of who's out of the money and by how much. If the sponsors are out of the money, they're going to quickly lose interest. And if the lenders are themselves not getting fully repaid, they're going to behave very differently in that. And the worse the distress, the more, in my kind of experience, people are going to be looking for a fast sale and everyone's going to be wanting to kind of wash their hands of it. But Mark, how would you answer that question? Exactly aligned with what you've had to say, Jeff. Where the fulcrum equity lies is really going to be the driver. And unfortunately, in the current environment, the fulcrum is pretty high up the capital stack in any number of entities and enterprises. Yeah, and the only thing that I would add to that, I agree with everything both of you just mentioned, but I do think that there's also a very conscious effort on the part of the lenders to determine who they're going to support, not only in healthcare, but across a whole host of other industries and who they're not, right? And so those actions are very different if you fall into the category of not being supported, but it really does come down to a large extent with companies that have been performing well pre-COVID and would be expected to recover and do well at, at some point coming out the other side. But you know, if you were in a situation where you had four, five, six different amendments were constantly missing your numbers and you know, we're a troublesome credit, you're probably going to find it pretty hard. Even if you've got some sponsor support, you're going to find it pretty hard, I think, to find the lenders looking to be a meaningful part of the solution. So in consideration being paid for transactions is obviously important. But in distressed scenarios right now, frankly, the speed at which a party can move and the certainty of closing on M&A transactions is valued almost as much as the actual consideration proposed to be paid. So speed and certainty are really paramount under current circumstances. One other dynamic I would add is that in the several that I've seen, I think when the credit is more heavily clubbed together, that you diminish the interest of all of the participants, which makes having a lender-based solution a little more difficult to orchestrate. It's a limited data set, but that's been a dynamic that I've seen that can have an impact on how people behave and, and kind of their interest level in being a part of the solution. I don't know if that answers your question a little bit. Another topic that we wanted to kind of spend a little time with are kind of deal dynamics. If you're a buyer and you're looking at it, we've talked a little bit about speed and we may come back to that, but maybe if we could hear how people are thinking about the topic of valuation. We get lots of discussions around this topic, whether it's everyone's heard the EBITDA of uh, your earnings before uh, interest, taxes, depreciation, and COVID. I don't know how far that gets you, but Laura and others on the call, how are people thinking about valuations in an an environment where the trailing 12 months is kind of a, a weird dynamic? Yeah, so what we've seen thus far is it's a little bit surprisingly so, but the multiples have have held up for the most part. But what people have taken kind of a sharper pencil to, if you will, is that EBITDA, and in particular, the go-forward EBITDA. So, you know, it it has tended to be less on the historical for all the reasons that that we all could comment on in this film, and more about what's it going to look like going forward 
you know, whether it's the protective measures that limit, you know, the number of patients in any setting that can come in, whether it's the increased cost due to the PPE that uh, folks are going to have to, the service providers are going to have to wear. The performance is expected to look even, again, for, you know, folks that should recover and come out the other side of this, the revenue is going to look different and so is the EBITDA. And so that's where we've seen greater pressure while the multiples, again, have remained at least thus far somewhat constant. Yeah, I would agree, Laura. And we've seen some kind of blended multiples of you've got your pre-COVID and then your expected post-COVID in the coming year and kind of doing a blend EBITDA. But I agree that much more we have seen other mechanisms on the payouts of the purchase price. So having buyers much more consistently have at a dramatic volume proposing different forms of whatever you want to call it, hold back. We healthcare attorneys don't like the word earnout, but all sorts of different pricing protective mechanisms in there. And they've been all over the map in terms of what they look like. And anytime you're going to have one of these pricing mechanisms, of course, depending on how much government pay there is, what type of business it is, going to put a little bit of regulatory pressure on the deal. But we have buyers being much more insistent on being able to protect the business risk and accept a little bit of regulatory risk, sellers being willing to do that so that they ultimately can still get what they perceive as the full value of their business, those that are optimistic that in that coming year, 18-month period, whatever is the measurement period, they're confident that they're going to be able to come back. To that point on the, the regulatory side of earnouts, there's, I mean, over the last five years, there's always been a lot of reluctance to use earnouts in provider services transactions, but there's always been some edges where you're in shades of gray, which is the nature of uh, healthcare transactions, and to Amber's point, both the appetite for buyers and sellers, and frankly, the the legal bar has been taking steps on a branch that a year ago would have been less likely to see taken, and it's still evolving, and it makes people nervous, but sometimes those sort of contingent purchase prices are a necessary pathway to really come to agreement on value, and and furthermore, some of the shades of gray are looking at kind of intent-based analysis, or is this this payment intending to induce some referral or something else, and it's much easier to wrap your head around the intent of an earnout really being a party's trying to arrive at a valuation in the midst of a pandemic, and some of those intent-based analysis get a little bit more palatable given what's going on. As far as other kind of deal dynamics, Mark, you talked a little bit about speed. How would you describe kind of the speed necessary or pathways necessary? Because I always feel like there's elements where you have to be much quicker, and then there's going to be also procedural elements that are not as quick. How would you talk about speed in the context of a distress deal? Sure. So in many instances, both in within the healthcare sector and outside, a troubled company's liquidity is really a driver for a transaction. And in some circumstances, a suitor or purchaser is able to help bridge liquidity 
And in that event, there may be a way to perform diligence on a, a more traditional type of course in terms of timing where there isn't an ability or desire to bridge liquidity, then most often the company's ability to survive day in, day out operations for those that have reopened their doors in the healthcare space really is going to drive transaction timing. That, of course, however, is balanced by a real need, particularly in distressed transactions, for a purchaser to perform extensive diligence. And frankly, again, with COVID in place, there are some elements of diligence which weren't previously thought about or existed, and now diligence has to take on new forms and new functions given our current environment. So that tension is something that almost always has to be reconciled in a distressed transaction. Another dynamic that I've encountered, and I'll be curious to hear if, if others have experienced as well, is that the evolving market for rep and warranty insurance has been a a real meaningful bridge on risk allocation topics. I've got a couple transactions running right now where basically all of the proceeds will be flowing to uh, lenders who have not been in the operation of the business. Maybe senior management's in place. Maybe it's been a, a turnaround consultant that's been working on the, the management of the company. And in the context of a of a distressed transaction, there may be nobody that is going to be able to stand behind uh, operational and liability reps and warranties. The lender is usually not going to do it. The sponsor may be out of the money and it's not, they're not even getting the proceeds. So you pretty quickly find yourself with no meaningful recovery. However, if you can uh, layer in, and we found carriers willing to underwrite to this situation, if you're you can layer in uh, rep and warranty insurance and maybe even on a, a zero indemnity basis, meaning that the seller is not even absorbing half of the retention and the buyer is absorbing the full retention. That still is an underwritable policy as long as you're willing to buy $5 million worth and can jump through some hoops with respect to there still needing to be meaningful diligence that they can underwrite to. But it has really been a bridge through what otherwise would be kind of a naked purchase and makes buyers a lot more comfortable. I don't know if others have been seeing those dynamics at play as well. I just was going to say, in those, though, the policies typically are doing broad carve-outs for COVID, right? So it's still a tool to protect yeah. the buyer and, and help deal with these dynamics, but you should absolutely expect those broad carve-outs. That's what you've seen, correct? Right. In that instance, it's one of the tools that a, a rep and warranty underwriter has, in addition to the diligence, is that they can, in the, the legal kind of analysis of it's a little bit more complex, but they could have fraud claims, in particular to the sellers, if they are kind of shifting known risks to the policy and other things that you could see how a carrier would think it's fraudy. In the context where you have a lender that is the seller, they get more nervous about it because they're not. it's not going to be fraudy in the sense that the, the lenders know of things that they're not disclosing. The lender's concern around fraud is actually more specific that them delivering or having a part in, or maybe the, the, the turnaround consultants worried about it as well, that they're them delivering a purchase agreement that makes reps for which they don't have specific knowledge on some of the elements of. 
that that itself would be uh, fraud, and we've had negotiations with the carriers as to the definition of fraud in the purchase agreement because that's what usually gets invoked in the policy, that to be very clear that the only fraud that is discussed in the purchase agreement is actual fraud, not something that is constructive of things that you should have known because the sellers in particular get antsy that they, they are undertaking their own exposure to the carrier. But we've found that those are navigable pathways, which especially contrasting it with your alternative of having nothing, it can be a meaningful addition to the risk allocation for a deal. Jeff, I was likewise um, going to mention that the market for rep and warranty insurance has become even more aggressive. We're now, and this is a relatively new advent, but rep and warranty insurance can be underwritten even in bankruptcy deals these days, which is not something until only very recently that was a product that was available. It really does change the dynamics to the buyer. It makes it more comfortable to proceed. One question, uh, Laura, Mark, Amber, I'll send your, your ways, is has there been anything as this has unfolded, uh, whether we're talking distress, transactions, or the impact of this pandemic, that has been surprising to you as it's unfolded? It's a good question. I think that perhaps the surprise was more, you know, early on just in terms of different viewpoints on the impact it was going to have here, certainly in the U.S. I think some folks took it as a more serious impact to their business and certainly to the U.S. economy than than others did. So, but I think overall, just the length of the interruption to the businesses as a whole hasn't necessarily been a huge surprise to us. I think where we've seen most of the discussion thus far has been on the differing viewpoints on what recovery looks like and what the macro trends in terms of those that are going to be accelerated as a result of COVID, how many of those kind of come crashing in and have a fundamental impact on not only healthcare, but a broad variety of industries going forward. And so, you know, somebody mentioned telehealth at the beginning of the call. I mean, that's one that we think is absolutely going to, you know, be here to stay and grow exponentially. So what aspect that has on a particular business, I think, is something folks should, you know, really look to as as well as a a host of, you know, what social distancing stays in place and and what it means for the top line and revenue as well as, you know, cost makeup of some of these businesses. So I, I think really that kind of the differing viewpoints on some of those issues and, you know, the length of of recovery, I think, is more what's been surprising to us. Some folks still think it's going to be very much, you know, a a quicker recovery and and some more of a a U, but that that seems to be where a lot of the disconnect, surprisingly so, has been, at least from the conversations that we've been involved in. I'll offer up one while uh, any any others are thinking there's, it's interesting doing, uh, doing deals in healthcare provider services, how kind of over the last few years, there's been a lot of similarity of how kind of buyers approach kind of the market and, and how they think of risk appetites. And it's been fairly uniform how they would think about things. In the midst of this, the responses have been much more varied in the sense that different sponsors have had very different risk appetites to get back involved in doing acquisitions. There are some who have been of the mind that this is a real buying opportunity and that things in distress can still be things of value and have been pretty aggressively in that mix. And others have been a little bit more circumspect in 
less desirous of jumping back into acquisitions as quickly. And I, I chalk that up to different uh, risk appetites, and there's certainly not a right or wrong answer to that, but it's been an interesting dynamic to see given how more uniform people's approaches have been prior to this. Mark or Amber, any surprises in your minds? I would say, Jeff, that the extent to which equity sponsors where before their platform just plain and simply was not one that they ever looked at or considered distress, that there has been, if not a seismic shift, a significant shift in any number of sponsors where before a distress deal was not something that was within their investing parameters. And now more and more funds without question are giving good hard looks at distressed transactions. I will just offer something that I think is actually a bit amusing. It's an interesting BD technique, but Jeff, you mentioned, and I think that's right, kind of the three different categories of investors and how they're viewing this. What I think is really interesting and has surprised me is in that category of investors that is ready to, you know, go forth full steam ahead into those sectors with which they are quite comfortable. Clearly, they still need to do the buyer side protections or doing the diligence a little bit differently. There's the pricing techniques that we talked about earlier. But the interesting part to me is how quickly some of those buyers did a complete reformation of their pricing process, their BD, their diligence, and have rolled it out under the mantra of this is how you do deals now. This is just the way it is. It's impressive and interesting. Those that have spent a lot of time with their boards and their deal teams of this is how we do it. We're not going to vary. It's the new way of doing deals exactly like this. I think that's been really fascinating. For sure. For sure. Well, with that, I think we'll bring this to a close. This has been a fun experiment. Thank you for those that uh, participated, and we're, we're hopeful that this will be the start of a dialogue. So if, if you have some kind of further questions or want to kick around any of these ideas with me or Amber or Mark or Laura, shoot us a note. We'd be happy to continue the dialogue. We hope this has been helpful. We appreciate we'll, you joining uh, us on this episode of Across Thanks the Table. Everyone. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.